remember being at the back of a church with the press corps and Cruz went off about being a PK and the church just found that delightful. And there was just this blank look on so many faces of my peers. And they looked at me as the Texan and I was like, preacher's kid. And they were like, oh. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, August 18th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about Iowa, which is shaping up to be the all or nothing battleground for the Republican nomination in 2024. With apologies to New Hampshire, most of the GOP action has been taking place in Iowa lately, including the Iowa State Fair, where I spent the week talking to Republicans about whether they're open to a candidate other than Donald Trump. Abby covered Ted Cruz and his victory in Iowa back in 2016, and we discuss what it takes to win the Hawkeye State. And later, Lauren Sherman joins Ben to discuss the massive $8.5 billion fashion business merger that's attempting to take on LVMH. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Welcome to the powers that be, everybody. Happy Friday. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk politics, specifically the Republican race in Iowa, where I have spent pretty much most of the week I'll be filing for Puck on what I've learned out here. Uh, Abby, thank you for joining me. Uh, you've been covering Congress for a while. When you were at the Texas Tribune, and we love the Texas Tribune here at the powers that be and at Puck, you were covering Ted Cruz and uh, Rick Perry. Rick Perry ran for president twice. Some people forget that he ran a second time in 2016. Ted Cruz uh, ran in 2016, and he ultimately won the Iowa caucuses. He beat Donald Trump, people might forget, by a few points here before Trump went on to New Hampshire and then just started crushing everybody on his way to the nomination. So I thought you and I could have a decent conversation about you know, what it takes to win Iowa, like the what the caucus goers here are like on the Republican side. What do you remember from covering Iowa when you were bouncing around with Ted Cruz? Why did he eventually pull it out here? Because like Trump was, you know, in the mix to win Iowa, but he didn't pull it out in the end. Why do you think Cruz was able to do it instead of him? I mean, I think that there are many critiques of Ted Cruz, but among them are not laziness. He worked extremely hard in that state and that is what matters. And I'm curious when we move on to hear your angle of it, if that sort of mm -hmm. grassroots thing still matters. And mm -hmm. also uh, one of our frequent topics, uh, Jeff Rowe and his team ran a very smart campaign that was in some ways modeled after Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. And so they were sort of ahead of the curve of like the sort of, it almost felt like astrophysics of algorithms and polling and things like that. So I think it was a combination of advanced technology and old fashioned, you know, just work ethic. And I think that's what it takes. But what I'm curious from you and this modern era of Donald Trump reality star mm -hmm. who's been on the American scene for 50 years and social media, does that still matter? Yeah. Look, if you, I wrote about this for Puck a couple of weeks ago and I asked the same question, Abby, like I genuinely don't know if the sort of local hand-to-hand -hand combat of retail politics and getting endorsements from pastors and activists, like, does that stuff still matter? Or is everything Fox News and Facebook and Dan Bongino and Steve Bannon? Like, it's just I, one thing I was interested 
to try to figure out while in Iowa was like, how much are caucus goers still abiding by the hallowed traditions of Iowa caucuses? And one, I should say, what you said about Cruz organizationally versus Trump, that's really important still, according to my conversations here, at least. And again, a lot of the Iowa Republicans I talk to have a vested interest in standing up for Iowa and saying that it matters and Iowa winnows the field and et cetera, et cetera. I talked to Steve Scheffler, who is a pretty conservative activist here in Iowa, who's also on the Republican National Committee and has been for a very long time. And, you know, he's neutral in the race because he's on the RNC. But he was still saying that organization really matters. Um, Ron DeSantis, who has the aforementioned Jeff Rowe working on his super PAC, has reset his campaign, quote unquote, reset, and is really going in on the going to all 99 counties and making sure Mm -hmm. that you go to all the potluck dinners and the, the Baptist churches and all that stuff. And Trump is a creature of the other kind of Republican campaigning, which is just be on every screen at all times, consume your attention. And I do think just after a few days there that there is a little bit of an opening for a candidate other than Trump. Uh, A lot of Republican voters we talked to at the Iowa State Fair went to a Story County Republican dinner, which is about 30 minutes outside of Des Moines, where Tim Scott was speaking. A lot of curious Republicans there who said like, They're considering DeSantis, considering Tim Scott, considering Vivek Ramaswamy. His name came up a lot. He's one of those guys who's trying to be do every interview possible and be on every screen. And polls show, too, that Trump's a little softer here than he is nationally. He's up by like 20 points, so 40 points, still a big lead. But it does feel like the caucuses will be decided by can any singular anti-Trump Republican emerge from that pack? And can that Republican, does that person have the organizational prowess to get people to a Republican caucus in January? And and again, that's the difference between a caucus and a primary is big. You can post about Trump all day long on social media and rant about him to your friends and neighbors. But are you going to go caucus for him, you know, at your local community center uh, on a night in January rather than just wake up, go down the street and vote at your local precinct like a caucus it's a complicated. For, yeah, it's complicated. It's like the activists, like you got to get your people out and you got to win precinct by precinct by precinct. Um, I should point out, unlike the Democratic caucuses, which were a shit show last time in 2020 when <laughs> Pete Buttigieg won, where you kind of like caucus and you sit in a room and like show of hands and you try to pull people over. The Republican caucuses here are secret ballot. And by the way, the ballot could just be a piece of paper. But, you know, if you go to one of these things, they will hand out like scraps of paper and they'll have the like names printed out of everyone who's running. And then you go and you put it up in a little shoebox and they just count the votes. So, you know, the secret ballot aspect of a Republican caucus versus the public spectacle of a Democratic one, you know, that could favor a non-Trump candidate, I think, because like maybe people like secretly want to be like, ah, you know, I I don't think we need Trump again. And I, that, that was a conversation topic that, that came up among Republicans in my conversations. What Another thing that Cruz had, Abby, I think, that people kind of forget about, uh, and maybe this is not as true anymore, but when he announced his campaign in 2016, didn't he do it at, like... Uh, Liberty. Liber- Liberty, yeah. Like, he's really... like I was he there. Can, yeah, he can speak Bible. And, like, yes. church stuff matters out here. And Trump is, <laughs> Trump is not that guy. Look, white evangelicals have fully gone over to Donald Trump. Uh, they, they did years ago. But, you know, if you can quote scripture... And I saw Tim Scott do it, uh, and people ate it up. Um, that gives you a leg up. I feel like Ted Cruz, when he was out here, was talking about 
faith and abortion a lot. I remember in South Carolina being in a church with the press corps, and you're from the South too, but sometimes you feel a little lost in some of the Northeastern stuff. <laughs> but uh, I remember being at the back of a church with the press corps and Cruz went off about being a PK and the church just found that delightful. And there was just this blank look on so many faces of my peers. And they looked at me as the Texan and I was like, preacher's kid. And they were like, oh, and so there, I mean, there's a very esoteric language that if you're not familiar with, you're, you're like, what's going on? But if you know it, it feels very relatable. And it, mm-hmm. it felt Cruz was his pitch in 2016 was I'm one of you and let's make the cool kids table our table, basically, mm-hmm. was how I interpreted it. One question I have for you about Iowa. It wasn't that long ago that Iowa was a viable Democratic state. I mean, it wasn't that long ago there was a Senator Tom Harkin. Democrats were competing in all these districts. What is the effect that you can feel at this point of not having the entourage of Democratic presidential candidates coming to the Iowa State Fair or just the party building that happens with a presidential campaign? Yeah, I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time on my trip, like immersing myself with like going out of my way to like go over to right, the right. Polk County Democratic headquarters and be like, yo, what's the state of play here? Um, some other reporters who got here like the previous week for the state fair probably looking for a story. They did. You know, I did read some good pieces about how Iowa Democrats, you know, feel like they've been given up on. And like there's there's other um, states that are, are like that, too. Uh, you know, North Carolina is probably like slightly more competitive. Um, Ohio is another example. Um, and maybe even Montana where Tester is up this year. Like there are these states that nationally Democrats like, oh, those states are gone. Democrats can't win there. I'm not saying Joe Biden could win Montana, but Biden won (laughs) with Obama, Iowa and Ohio and North Carolina. And, you know, that wasn't that long ago. Look, I think a couple things happened. A lot of those eastern counties along the Mississippi River, uh, those are sort of white working class labor areas, pretty Catholic, uh, like closer to Illinois, basically. All those counties voted Obama for two different elections. And then they flipped to Trump and, and flipped pretty big. So like that is consistent with Trump's appeal to those sort of like lunch bucket, hard hat voters, you know, in different parts of the country who like, you know, maybe they don't vote on economic issues as much as cultural issues these days. And that, or at least having a college degree, you know, became the dividing line in politics and that affected Iowa. I talked to Rob Sand, who's the state auditor out here. He's a young guy. He's the only statewide Democratic official you know, left in the state. And he won in 2018 uh, and he got reelected in 2022, barely. There's not a really deep bench out here for Democrats, like in the state house. And the Republicans in the state house and the governor have really just gone to war against the Democrats out here in a variety of ways. But it's just interesting how, like at the Story County Republican dinner we went to, where Tim Scott spoke, a bunch of local Republicans spoke there as well. Steve Scheffler spoke. This is the Republican take. There used to be sort of moderate blue dog Democrats you could work with in Des Moines in the state house. Now they've all gone so far over to the woke left and they're beholden to liberals in Washington and they want like abortion on demand. The sort of like oppositional negative partisanship battle lines are just very, very clearly drawn here. And Republicans, man, I don't know. I just think they they're pretty cocky. And maybe it's sort of like Texas almost, where it's like, how do how do Democrats even fight back at this point? Because they don't have the bodies <laughs> in office. And the only other point I'll make on all this, like, 
I just, you know, I was interviewing Republicans, but, uh, you know, I, I saw some Democrats around the fair and I was just like, do you think Biden's too old? And they're like, yeah, like he doesn't excite people. He doesn't fire people up. I mean, that's like a boring take at this point, but like, it's, it's what, there, what is an it's Iowa real. Democrat? What is an Iowa Democrat supposed to get excited about right now? It's a, it's a difficult question for them. And I think one of my other questions for you is what I love about Iowa and New Hampshire is as a reporter, and it's something I can't explain, but you can feel things in the air. You can, you know, instinctively mm-hmm. in a way that you may not always be able to show the evidence of, but what does it feel like right now? <laughs> like, does it, is there any sense in the air of where things are headed? Yeah, I th- I'm glad you asked that because I was literally just thinking about this piece I wrote for CNN that our friend Michelle Giacconi actually copy edited for me because I was worried about it when I wanted to post it because it was so contrary to the conventional wisdom in Washington at the time. And the piece was at the end of 2014, I think, like well before the 2016 election, I went out to Iowa and it was after the midterms. People were, it was still the holidays, but people were starting to like be like, okay, the caucuses are coming. And this this is a story about Hillary Clinton. And I just literally spent a week here talking to state legislators, um, activists, some folks who had worked on past Democratic campaigns. I went to a couple like, you know, uh, county Democratic Party holiday dinners, like all that stuff that you and I love like doing as a reporter. It was just very clear at the time that while everyone assumed that Hillary was the de facto Democratic nominee, that was the take in Washington too, no one was excited about her. And so I wrote this piece called like Hillary Clinton has an Iowa problem and the Hillary people didn't like it. Someone I will not name at CNN pushed back on it so hard. And they were like, I don't, this isn't right. Like, how can we put you on TV? This isn't right. And like, I'm not going to name And you were on the ground. Yeah, 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 exactly. This person was, uh, hadn't really left the 202 or 703 in many a year, certainly not to come to the 515, but the dynamic right now reminds me a little bit of that Republican, Regulars are in love with Donald Trump in a way Democrats never were with Hillary Clinton. But they're under the hood, under the poll numbers, there is a softness that you can pick up on by talking to people here. And I had lots of conversations with Republicans who like Trump. They want options. They're looking. They're having a conversation and thinking about other options. And past caucuses for Republicans, 2012, 2016, 2008 with Mike Huckabee, like they, they break late and there's a possibility someone other than Trump could come on strong late. The reason I make the Hillary 2016 analogy is she still won Iowa and she barely won. That was like the coin flip caucus or whatever. Trump is probably going to win Iowa, but it could be a lot closer than it is right now. Uh, Republican caucus goers are open to new choices and new faces and we'll see how close it gets. And if it gets really close, then you go to New Hampshire, maybe some people drop out. Maybe it becomes a head-to-head. I'm just saying Trump's probably the nominee, but like, you know, we don't live in a black and white world. Like it could be closer than we think it is and certainly closer than we thought it would be a year ago or two years ago. And that's what's most interesting to me is Republicans are talking about looking at other candidates in the party. And like that never would have happened in 2020 or 2021. All right, Abby, well, thank you for asking me questions. You can fill in and host for me anytime you want. Thank you for having me. When we come back, Lauren Sherman is here to talk about a new threat to LVMH. (music) 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, joined by star fashion business reporter Lauren Sherman. Hi there. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who don't know, there was some fairly massive news in the fashion industry last week when a company called Tapestry, which owns Coach and Stuart Weitzman and Kate Spade, bought for $8.5 billion a company called Capri, which owns Versace, Jimmy Choo, and Michael Kors. This is interesting for a bunch of reasons that we can get into, but it really got me thinking about the sort of mid-market category that you've called aspirational luxury or near luxury, which just seems like such an unstable position to be in because you're always dealing with that sort of tension between pricing things just high enough that it has that kind of luxury aura or sheen, but low enough that they're mass market. And Lauren, I guess my question is, if you're overseeing one of these brands, how do you get that balance right? without losing your appeal? Because that's going to be a big issue for this bigger company, Tapestry, now that it owns all these brands together. Well, 20 years ago was a lot easier because fast fashion didn't exist globally in the way that it does now. So getting cool, trendy items for super, super cheap wasn't as easy in like 2005. So when Coach and Michael Kors and Kate Spade really became big companies that were distributed widely, not only in the US, but in China, there wasn't as much competition. So they could take ideas from the higher end of the market and diffuse them into more accessible, not only more accessible in terms of design, but also in terms of price to a bigger group of people. And they were special. I mean, coach bags have been around forever. And for a long time, they were seen as sort of, you got a coach bag for a milestone, maybe your high school graduation, your college graduation, your first job or something like that. But in the right. 2000s, this designer, Reed Krakoff, really turned it into an accessible luxury giant. But things have really changed since then. And the market, like everything in this world, has bifurcated. And the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and people want either very, very expensive things that they think are more special because they are expensive or very, very cheap things that they can buy a lot of, or at least something. And so that middle market, if you weren't offering something unique, they still make a lot of money and sell a lot of bags because they discount stuff. They have a big presence in the outlet store arena, but they're not as relevant culturally as they were. And so it's really hard. You have to make a product that is unique and special and desirable. And there aren't a lot of people in this world that know how to do that on the executive side and on the creative side. Okay. So if you're the CEO of Tapestry, you already own Kate Spade, Coach, Stuart Weitzman. You've now gone out and bought Versace, Jimmy Choo, Michael Kors. What is the business case for putting all those brands together into one company? Are there sort of back office savings? Or are there other synergies that, that make this worthwhile to investors? So Tapestry is an American company. They're very focused on quarterly results. 100%, they said they're going to save $200 million by putting these this group together. That will happen. They will be able to use the same factories. They'll be able to negotiate better with real estate companies, things like that. They will have more leverage in a lot of different ways. Well, now that all these different groups are together in, in, in one company, do you expect there's also going to be a refresh of the brands themselves? Are we going to see new creative directors coming in, new designers? Because some of these brands are a little bit fussier. At least they're, they're a little bit like, or at least it feels like some of them may have peaked five or 10 years ago. And they're not really like in the cultural zeitgeist the way that other brands are right now. 
Yeah. If you look at all the the brands in the group, the biggest brand coach is the best positioned. They have a creative director who understands the market. It seems like it's pretty well managed. Consumers are interested in it. Could it be better? Yes. But I'd say that out of all of them, it's in the best position, which is good for them because it is the biggest. And some of the other brands, they have very, very famous creative directors like Donatella Versace and Michael Kors. And I don't necessarily think that a shakeup at either of those brands is necessary. But what I do think is that they're going to have to search really hard for executives who know how to work with creative teams and put in an infrastructure where creativity fuels the business. And that's just not really the way American retail companies work. It's really focused on, let's get the business in shape let's save money and then we can figure out the product. Whereas in Europe, where you have these big luxury groups that are making gazillions of dollars a year, they are very much like, let's make the product and the marketing perfect and the money will come. And so it's a different mindset. And I do think the folks at Tapestry, I know that the CEO of Tapestry really wanted to have more lu- pure luxury in the group. And and you could argue that Jimmy Choo and Versace have brought that to the larger group if this deal does go through. And so I think the intention is there, whether or not they can pull it off. I don't know. I hope so. I mean, you always want brands to be more interesting. If you look at the transformation of Tory Burch, one of their main competitors over the last few years, they've hired new designers. They've kind of refocused the brand with Tory really leading the creative in a way that feels, I don't want to say, I hate the word authentic, but that feels true to her. And and they're mostly direct to consumer and they are making products that don't look like anything else on the market. They're not diffusing. And so that's what you have to do. I mean, it's not going to be a perfect business no matter what, but if they want this to bring long-term value to their investors, then they are going to have to figure out the product part for sure. Yeah. And I hope they're able to do that. I mean, when when you say that like part of the hope is that the sort of magic pixie dust of the Versace brand is going to trickle down in some ways into these other brands, I can't help but also harbor doubts when you're saying that for, especially for these American fashion companies, there is this real focus on quarterly earnings over that next fashion line that's really going to make an impact. That just seems like so short-sighted if the equity of these brands is slowly degrading over time. Yeah. I I don't want to make it, make it sound like the luxury brands don't care about making money. Their priority is making money also. It's always about the money. But the difference is they just approach making money differently. and And it has to do with kind of the history of luxury in Europe versus the history of fashion and apparel in the US that here our business stems from 7th Avenue shop and copy you go to Europe to the couture shows you do a sketch or you buy one sample and you copy it and you sell it in your stores and that was that was what people did in the 40s and 50s and you know up until the 70s with the rise of ready to wear so it's just a different history. And it seems crazy to think that that is still the reason that American brands operate the way they do and European brands operate the way they do. But I think it's just embedded in the in the culture. And it's it's hard to get out of that. You see success in the US. And one thing I don't think I mentioned in any of the stories I've done on this acquisition. So one one retail advisor said, you know, an interesting brand for tapestry to eventually buy would be like Aloe Yoga 
or something like that. And if you look at what is really successful in the U.S. right now in apparel, it is companies like Skims and Aloe Yoga. And those aren't like high fashion, but they are really American in the way that they operate and innovative. And that's where the U.S. succeeds in innovation, not necessarily in creating like standard desirable products. Well, Lauren, I'm, I'm rooting for them. It may not be the next LVMH, but we've got to stand behind good American companies rooting for the United States, rooting for our fashion conglomerates. I agree. <laughs> Go America. <laughs> Lauren, thanks as always. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. <laughs>